As we begin tonight, first off, good evening to all of you once again. And this is our 17th session of Unlock Revelation. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, tonight we ask for a special outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We're going to be talking about an extremely vital subject, one that many people are curious about. Help us to see from the Word of God the truth. Help us to be able to see from the Scriptures your power and grace to lead us victoriously through that we may be ready for the coming of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Now last night we discussed Babylon rising and the emergence of the beast power of revelation in Europe. Now tonight we will be addressing the topic that many, many people have been concerned about and are curious about. But what exactly does the Bible have to say is the mark of the beast? What exactly is the mark of the beast? And as we enter this subject tonight, I hope and pray that the Lord from Scripture will help you to see what it is rather than what you may hear people reciting all the time. But let's see what it says from Scripture. The Mark of the Beast. At two minutes past three o'clock in the morning on August 17, 1999, a tremendous earthquake rocked the nation of Turkey. It was a colossal tragedy. Official death tolls numbered the dead between 15,000 to 18,000 people. Some say that 45,000 people perished in that earthquake. There were tales of sadness. There were tales of heartbreaking experiences as people searched for their loved ones, many of whom they never found. They never recovered from the debris. And as the news began to filter back, people began to ask, how could this have happened? What would have caused this? And when they went through the process of cleaning up the rubble and debris, they noticed something. And that is one of the leading men in this particular city who was wealthy, he was well-respected, and the community exalted him as a leader in their community. He was a contractor. He constructed buildings. But as they went through the debris, they found that the concrete that he used could crumble in their hands. He took shortcuts in the materials that he used in building those buildings. And because he used inferior quality, he did not live up to the building codes that they have, which were kind of, kind of scant anyway, but he did not live up to the codes that they had. And as a result, when that earthquake came along, it was enough to just crumble those buildings. And what the earthquake didn't kill, the crumbling buildings did. There were needless lives lost because he did not follow the directions that were given to him. In the word of God tonight, we find that there's a similar calamity going to be coming to the earth. It'll be a time of great shaking. It'll be a time of shaking of nations and people. It'll be a time of shaking our spiritual experience. There will be those who will be shaken out of Christ. There will be those who will take their place when they leave. A time for decision. A time for taking a stand. And when that happens, we will see whether our spiritual house is built on the rock or if it's built on sand. 
The mark of the beast represents the great culmination of the age. Old battles between good and evil come to a head. It began long ago with the rebellion in heaven when Satan coveted Christ's place. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to kick God off his throne. He wanted worship that only belonged to God. And as a result, the drama of the ages is brought to a close now as we come to end times. The devil doesn't go out without a fight. He tries to make one last stand. He tries to deceive people into following him and worshiping him. He's very skillful. He makes it sound like he's doing you a favor when he's actually undermining you. And oftentimes, people are deceived willfully and willingly. They choose to be deceived because they prefer not to believe what the Word of God says. Once again, we find that at end times, there will only be two groups of people in the world. There will be those who are on the right hand. The Bible talks about the sheep and the goats. You will have the sheep who are following the true master. And then on the left hand, you'll find the goats who are following the one who thinks he can run things better than God can. God's final gospel message comes to us in Revelation 14, 9 and 10. And it says, and I've read it to you before, I'll do it again. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is serious, my friends. This is a very serious message. It's the last cry. The three angels' messages of Revelation are a last cry to the world to come out of Babylon, come back to the Word of God, and to take a stand for the Scriptures. Many people are looking for the number 666, and they have all kinds of interesting concepts and ideas as to what that is. Some say that it's a laser tattoo that's put on your hand or on your forehead that you can't see, but if you pass through like an ultraviolet light. Sometimes I go over to the uh, prison, the correctional facility, to visit some of the inmates over there. And as I go in, the guard, after they search you and everything, they will take and mark with a pen with invisible ink on your hand. And when you go in, you have to put that under an ultraviolet light so that they can see that you have gone through the process. When you come out, you have to also put your hand in there. You can't see it with your naked eye, but when you put it under the ultraviolet light, you can. So there are those who think that Maybe this is what the mark of the beast is. There are others who feel that it's a computer chip, a silicon chip that's implanted into people. Others say, well, the mark of the beast is a cashless society, credit cards and so forth. My friends, these are not the mark of the beast. Now, the beast may choose to use some of these methods, you understand, but they are not the mark itself. These are all things that are designed to get you to show that you are accepted by the beast. It also mentions that those who receive the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell. Well, that can happen now. You know, you just you just go over and talk to the bank and... Uh, they can just push a button and stop your credit card. So that's not the mark of the beast. 
that is a vehicle that could be because there, the Bible talks about economic hardships that will come upon people that will put so much pressure on them, it will drive them to conform with the mark of the beast if they're going to make a living, you see. So all of these things may have a place in it. I don't profess to be a prophet. I can't see the future. I can only tell you what the scriptures say. And these are things that can result from it. So we need to ask ourselves, what is the mark of the beast? We've already studied and identified the beast in question. And we find that the prophecy tells us that a beast is symbolic of a nation or a kingdom. And then when we spoke about Daniel 7 last time and Revelation 13, we find that it was a small nation that would arise at the end times after the fall of the Roman Empire. And I think, I'm not going to repeat all of the last lecture, but we're not the only ones who are pointing to this. The reformers and others pointed to this as the Vatican. It's a religio-political power that comes up, but it's still not the mark of the beast. Maybe the beast power, but it's not the mark of the beast. So what is it? The beast power does have a mark, and that mark will be revealed not necessarily by outward tattoos, but by what thoughts and actions a person has. Remember, behind your forehead is your frontal lobe. This is where your judgment, this is where your thinking, this is where your decisions take place. Your hand will have the deeds that follow whatever your thoughts are. This is what the battle is about. It's a battle for the mind. So we need to ask ourselves, what does the scripture point to as the mark of the beast? In Revelation 13, 18, it says, there is wisdom. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. 666. Now that's interesting. The number seven is the number of perfection, right? It's also the number of creation because God created the world in what? There's seven days in a creation week. What is six? Six is a day with no rest in the eyes of God. You see, it's the days that God worked creating things, but it leaves off the time he rests. And as we look at this, we find the number 666. Oftentimes we say, well, it's 666. Actually, it's 666. I think there's a greater implication on that than we think. It's a total of the number of the name or the title of the beast. When King Nebuchadnezzar was being instructed by Daniel, Daniel pointed to the uh, golden head and he said, you, O king, are this head. Now, did it mean Nebuchadnezzar himself or did it mean Nebuchadnezzar as the king of that empire? You see? So what is it saying here? The number of the one who is the head of that system. People, executives come and go all the time, you see. It's the number of that head, the official title that they have, okay? So we need to ask ourselves, what are some of the official titles of the beast power? Well, this is one of the most frequently used ones. There are others, but one of the most frequently used ones, vicarious 
Filii Dei. Now in Latin, what does that mean? That means the vicar for uh, the vicar of the Son of God. What is a vicar? Vicarious means in place of. The substitute for. He takes the place of the Son of God. Okay. Now, that's written in Latin. When you were in school, you remember Roman numerals? Let's take and look at a few Roman numerals and see how many of them actually have numerical counterparts. Some of them don't. Like you'll notice R, there's no numerical number for that. Uh, A, there's no number for that, or S. But some of them do. Look at the V. V is 5, right? All right, C is 100. Matter of fact, we get the word century from that. 1, or I is a 1. U is a 5 because a U and a V are the same. And if you get two U's together, you get a double U. Right? Okay. That's how it evolved. So these are numbers. Now, if we take those numbers and we plug them into the, the title, we, we start getting a few interesting things developing. F has no counterpart. I is a 1, L is 50, I is 1, in both cases, and day. D is 500, E is nothing, I is 1. So, what does that mean? Vicarious adds up to 112. Filiae, filiae comes up to 53, day comes up to 501, you add them up, 666. Now, you may say, oh, yeah, but hey, come on. Ronald Reagan's name can come up to 666, which I understand it did when you took his full name. But you see, there are other identifying marks. Some people have tried to do that with Barack Obama's name, too. I mean, I'm sure that maybe your name or even my name, I don't know, Bob, I don't think there's too many counterparts for that. But anyway... When you add these up, your name might even come up to 666. Now, does that mean necessarily that you have the mark of the beast? No. The interesting thing about this is, in different languages, the papacy has different titles. Romaneth. We find that there are some others, too. The interesting part is, that in each of these different languages, the languages of the Bible, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Sanskrit, and what was the other one? Babylonian. If you take their numbers and their counterpart system like this, and you use the title of referring to the Vatican or the head of the Vatican, it will come up to 666. That's a little bit more than coincidence. But even then, we cannot base it all on one thing. We need to find that even though we've calculated the number of the beast, but what does it say about it? Big deal. It comes up to 666. Oh, there is one thing I want to go back and touch on on this. In heaven, there are three divine entities, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, right? It's interesting that Pope Julius II said that the Pope is God on earth. Ooh. It's also, when Jesus said he could forgive sins, And the papacy says, I can forgive sins. Is that an attack against the Son? And then when Jesus left, he says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be my vicarious filii dei, my official representative. If we say that a man 
is the official representative and voice of God on earth, are we speaking against the Holy Spirit? You see, there's a threefold blasphemy that takes place in that name. That's why that uh, number is so significant. As we look further, look at uh, Revelation 13, 3, 4, and 8. It says, And I saw one of his heads as if it, it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. I think it's fair to say that we find the papacy even now growing in power and influence in the world, even though Vatican City is only the size of a golf course, you see. Now look at what else it says. So they worshipped the dragon. Who's the one that's giving this? Now here again, when Christianity began to blend with paganism, when Christianity started to lean upon the state to enforce its religious teachings, it's making a contract or a deal with the dragon who gives it the power. Now remember, the United States right now, we have separation of church and state, but we have reason to believe from that second beast of Revelation that we studied that those two powers separation of church and state, may be blurred and you'll find that the, the beast that started out like a little loving lamb starts speaking with the voice of a dragon. You see, it may be making the same mistake that we see here. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Who can speak against him? Look here in Revelation 3, 4, and 8 again. It says, all who dwell on earth will worship him. Now, will worship him. Now, we're talking about in the future. We're not talking about right now. We're talking about in the future because the mark of the beast is still before us. All right. Those who are on earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus, from the beginning of time, was destined to be the Lamb of God and the sacrifice for humanity. And it's the book of life out of which we will be judged. In plain words, this is saying that there's a time coming when we're going to have to decide, will we follow God and his word and his commandments, or are we going to follow men and their word, and their commandment. That time is before us. Well, I mean, if you go out here and get struck by a truck, you know, uh, this is the end of time for you. So we need to daily be right with God and be deciding for him. In Revelation 7.3, it says, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the tree till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, it's interesting that we already talked about the sea. That means people and nations and so forth. The earth means uh, um, a wilderness area. Basically, this usually refers to the new world and the old world because that's where those beast powers came up. Now, what about the tree, though? The Bible talks about those who love the Lord being planted as a tree. A tree has usually represented a righteous person or a person per se. And it says, don't harm the righteous man until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So he's saying that there's a time coming when there will be two seals. One is the seal of God in the minds and hearts of people, and the other is the seal or mark of the beast in the minds and hearts and hands of people. You see? 
Here are the commandments of God. I don't know if you can see them from way in the back. I almost bought, I, I brought with me, I had a nice big um, golden um, picture of these. But notice, these four commandments refer to our relationship to God. These six over here refer to our relationship to our fellow men. And when Jesus says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, he's talking about this table. When he says, you'll love your neighbor as yourself, he's talking about that table, you see. And notice behind both is the word love. God wants us to serve him, keep his commandments because we love him, not because we're afraid we're going to be put in jail or we're going to be executed or something. But the beast power says you worship me or you will be put in jail and executed. You see, God doesn't work that way. Now notice also that this second commandment, look how big it is. Look at the fourth commandment, how big it is. And then look over here at this commandment, how big it is. It's actually bigger than the one above it. But you see, these were the largest of the commandments. And these three commandments were the first things to be tampered with. Because the beast power doesn't like it. And this one talked about images. This one related to which day of the week is the Sabbath. This one, in order to justify what had happened here, had to be split. The state can help control. The state can have power over this second tablet. The, the government can tell you, you're not going to kill people. The government can say, you can't steal. But the government cannot control your mind here. This is religious liberty. This is freedom of conscience. And this is what the beast power will try to attack. It will try to control the minds of people. I mean, most people, I don't care what religion or what nationality or what their background is, they know you're not supposed to go around killing other people, except for a few terrorists. They apparently haven't caught on to that yet. But most people will agree, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't uh, uh, commit adultery, and you should be good to your neighbors. Most of us agree with that. But this is the part. This is where the devil has a problem. Why? Because this relates to the worship of God. And this is where the devil wants to perform his deed. Notice in Hebrews 8, 10, it says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, the original Ten Commandments were written on a table of stone. They were a good moral code. Everybody looked at them and said, yeah, those are pretty good. We ought to follow those. And then they went and did what they wanted to do. You see. And what he is saying here is, you know what? I'm going to take the Ten Commandments off the wall. And I'm going to put them in your heart and in your mind. You see. So that it transforms your life. Because as long as they're hanging on the wall, it's not transforming your life. That's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Where it's written. There are those who want to hang the Ten Commandments in the courthouses. They want to hang the Ten Commandments in the schools. As if that's going to really make people better. And not only that, but whose Ten Commandments are you going to put up there? The one from the Catechism? Or the one from the Scriptures? You see, it makes a difference. And people are going to start saying, hey, how come that one you've got hanging out on the wall is different from the one I read in the Bible? And they're going to start asking questions. And when people start asking questions, they're going to say, oh boy, which one am I going to follow? You see, 
there's a conflict that will arise here. And he wants to take them off the wall and put them in our hearts and minds and our lives. Look at Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you what? You created all things. Okay? And by your will, they exist and were created. Now, what's the word there? Created? What's the word here? Created. What is a common philosophy that is taught today that attacks that? The theory of evolution. Thank you. The theory of evolution. I was not specially created as a human being. I just kind of evolved from a slime mold. Right? What does evolution do? It attacks the creatorship of God. And when we get over to Revelation, Revelation over and over again repeats, I am the God who created you. Not Charles Darwin. I did. You see, God has a flag, and so does the President of the United States. This makes it official. Any government official has a seal. King Ahab had a seal. And when he wanted a law passed saying that he could have his next-door neighbor's uh, vineyard, then the neighbor wouldn't give it to him. He started to mope and sulk. And his wife Jezebel came in and said, What is the matter with you? Aren't you the king? He said, Yeah, I am. He said, But he won't give me his field. And she says, Look, give me your signet ring. Your signet ring. Now, the signet ring, remember when the story about the prodigal son and the father? The father gave the son when he came back. He gave him his signet ring. What does that mean? He gave him the checkbook. That's what he gave him. We don't wear signet rings today, but we have a checkbook. We say, here, here's the checkbook. I trust you to write what you need. And the signet ring, Queen Jezebel took his ring, and she wrote a law saying that he could have that field next to him. Of course, he killed the neighbor to get it. But she killed him. But it said that he could have that field. And then he took the king's ring and he sealed it with it. That law could be changed. But once the king's signet was in it, that's official. So we find that the signet was a sign that made a document official. And notice, this is the seal of the President of the United States. Notice it tells, well, on this, it doesn't give his name. It doesn't say Barack Obama. But instead it says President. Only one person can use that seal. It's the President, right? And it tells, actually that's his office, because we change presidents so much, um, We don't put their names on it. But it tells his office and it tells the territory that he has dominion over. And if indeed God is a God who operates by laws, then shouldn't his signet, shouldn't his seal be found in his commandments? Well, if you look at all the other commandments, you'll find that there's only one commandment that actually has the seal in it. And it's the only one that begins with the word remember. Now, if you've never remembered anything in the first place, how can you remember it? Right? To remember implies that you remembered it in the first place. You made it a part of you in the first place. But some have chosen to forget It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And I'd like to add a W on that. Let's keep the whole thing holy. Okay? Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, 
but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now, the you find right there, you find an interesting point. It says here that he is the Lord, Yahweh. And then it goes on to say, your God, in it you shall do no work, neither you, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens and the earth. There's the territory. There's his dominion, heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. And he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The, the seal of God. It's got all the elements of a seal in it to make it official. Now, the devil has a counterfeit. He's got a counterfeit for everything. And that counterfeit is going to try to attack that. And as we see here, he specifically tells us that we are to remember which is pleasing to God. He says that he is the one who created all of these things. And his dominion is all-inclusive. He's the one who is God, not we ourselves. This is found in the Sabbath. It's not found in any other commandment. Look at Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a, what? A sign. A sign, a mark, a seal, the same thing. If you go out here and you come to an octagonal sign that's red, what are you supposed to do? Stop. Even if it doesn't say stop on it, you stop. Why? Because that is the sign, that is the symbol, that is the mark that tells you something. And it has legal authority. If you don't believe it, go through it. Well, there's a bubblegum machine on the other side. You'll find out whether it's legal or not. It's what gives authority and makes it legal or official. It says sign between what? Them and me. It, it shows that this is a special sign between God and his people. Why? Because if by observing this, they are now keeping all of the commandments. You can, you can keep nine of the commandments if you want, but are you really keeping the commandments of God until you keep all ten? You see, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Sanctify means to make holy. You are not holy, but if God declares you holy, then you're holy, you see. And the word sanctify comes from the same root as sanctuary. It means dedicated, set aside for a holy purpose. They come from the same root. Ezekiel 20.20, he tells us to hallow my Sabbaths. That means to keep them holy or sanctify them. And they will be a sign. Once again, that word sign pops up. Sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Now look at that. Ezekiel said that. In 2012, he said it there. And in 2020, he says it again. When something is repeated in Scripture, it's a sign of emphasis. He's saying, listen up, you guys. I got something important to tell you. That's what he's saying. Just like Jesus, when he said, verily, verily, I say unto you. He's saying, hey, perk up. This is important. And so when this is repeated, and both are repeated in the 20th chapter of Ezekiel, showing that God considered this important. Yes, he's the God of creation. He's the one that made this world. And did you ever stop to think that he has a double claim on us? We are his by creation. We are also his by redemption. He bought us back again. Why? When we were sold into slavery of sin. He offered himself as the Lamb of God. My friends, you are very special in the eyes of God. And why should we serve him? 
because we love him. He, he loved us enough to buy us back when we had gone astray. Should we return the favor by loving him in return? What is the one thing he wants from us? He says, my son, give me thine heart. When he says heart, he doesn't mean the thing that goes pump, pump, pump and pumps blood. He means our, our thoughts, our heart, our affection, our emotions. He, he's talking about your frontal lobe here. He says, I will come, let us reason together. You can, your sins can be black and scarlet. I'll make them white as snow. Come, let us reason together. My friends, God is calling us to a reasonable faith. He's ours because he's our creator just as he was the creator of the world. In Mark 2, 27, it says, the Sabbath was made for the Jews. Oh, did I misread that? What's it say? The Sabbath was made for what? Doesn't say women on there. Does it? The Sabbath was made for man. In the language, in the original language, it means the Sabbath was made for mankind. You see. And the first mankind to keep the Sabbath was Adam and Eve. The Sabbath predates Moses and the mountain. So we cannot say that it was for the Jews. It's for all mankind. Every descendant of Adam. God has not changed anything. Men may have tried to change it. But God has not. Let's look what it says in Revelation 14, 9 and 10. Then the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast or his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. There's a time coming when God's people are going to be called to make a decision, either to stand for God or against him. And those who stand for him will be will be ready to meet Jesus when he comes. Those who stand against him and choose to follow the traditions of men and to give in when people start putting pressure on you, they're going to end up, if they're not real careful, receiving the wrath of God. And I want you to know that when you start standing for the commandments of God, you are going to have people saying mean, nasty things about you. They're going to misinterpret things you say. Because when you start standing up for what's right, other people have a choice to make. They either have to come up to where you are spiritually or they have to tear you down to where they are. You see. And so we need this is why I said before, Christianity is not for wimps. It, it takes a lot of intestinal fortitude to be a true Christian. Even look at the, some of these martyrs who stood firm in the, in the sight of all kinds of affliction. If we're truly going to be Christians, Revelation 14:12 says, here is the patience of the saints. Now the word patience means steadfastness. It means firmness. That's what it means. Here is the firmness of the saints. Now, what is a saint? A saint is a forgiven sinner. That's what it is. It's not a superhuman being. It's a forgiven sinner. How many of you consider yourselves forgiven sinners? Praise God, you're a saint. Now, now you've now you, now you got to convince your husband and wife of that, you understand <laughs> Depends how forgiving they are, you know. But in the eyes of God, you are a forgiven sinner. You are a saint. Here are those who keep. The word keep means do it. That's what it means. It means to do it. 
If, if you keep your marriage vows, it means you do your marriage vows. You don't do the opposite of it, right? So you keep or observe the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now that can be translated two words or two ways. The faith of Jesus, the kind of faith that Jesus had, and it can also mean faith in Jesus. That our trust is in him. Both of them are correct. And both of them are acceptable in tra- different translations. So we find that the real test of our faith, the real proof of the pudding will be whether or not the faith we profess is backed up by what God has told us to do, the obedience to it. Now let me get something clear to you. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace. The grace of God because of the faith we have in him that he will do what he promised to do. I was reading something just today. It was talking about Seventh-day Adventists and being a Seventh-day Adventist. Naturally, I was interested. And it says, well, Seventh-day Adventists say we are saved by grace or by faith. But you have to keep the commandments to be saved. Well, that isn't what I'm saying. I hope that's not what I'm coming across. I'm saying to you that if we really have faith in what God says, it'll show up in our lives. You see, I mean, you relate that to any other of the commandments and that argument will fall flat on its face, what they were saying. Well, you know, it says, thou shalt not steal. Well, hey, that's righteousness by works. That's righteousness by works. I mean, it's all right to steal and you'll be saved because you got faith in Jesus. That's all right? Uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's, that's legalism. That's righteousness by works. I believe in Jesus. That's, that doesn't apply anymore. I can go out and commit adultery and still be saved. That makes sense. You try that kind of reasoning with the other commandments doesn't work. And yet, people will try to use it here because we say that the Sabbath should be kept. Oh, no, no, that was nailed to the cross. That's, that's righteousness by work. That's legalism. You, you're trying to make a Jew out of us. Well, okay, then we're making Jews out of you by telling you you shouldn't kill or you shouldn't steal, or you shouldn't commit abortion. Right? People will throw stones at you because they either don't know what you really are saying, or they really don't care to know what you're really saying. Because it might affect their need to evaluate their own spiritual position. Notice what it says in Daniel 7.25. And he shall think to change times and laws. Now, it doesn't say he changed them. He would think to. I can think to change the law of gravity. I can think that I can jump out of an airplane and fly. Well, I can think it all the way down until I go splat. Right? Because whether I think it or not, the law is still in existence. And so... He will think to change times and law. Has that happened? Let's ask the Vatican whether or not it happened and by whose authority did it happen? Because the Catholic Church has been around a long time, so they must have a lot to say about it. Look at the Converts Catechism, page 50. Which is the Sabbath day? Saturday or Sunday is the... uh, Saturday is the Sabbath day. And then it says, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? The answer, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity 
from Saturday to Sunday. Now, does it say by what biblical authority? It doesn't. It says we changed it because we say we have the authority to do it. Let's look at Cardinal Gibbons in Faith of Our Fathers. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will what? Not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scripture enforces the religious observance of Saturday. Bless their hearts, they are honest. I've run into so many Protestants who try to manipulate the Bible to give it a line of scriptural authority. But the Catholic Church agrees with what I'm telling you. There's nothing in the Bible that authorizes you to change the commandments of God. The only one who can change the commandments of God is God. And if you change the commandments of God, you're claiming to be God. And if you're claiming to be God, that's known as blasphemy. Let's look. This is Catholicism and fundamentalism. Now, it's interesting. The word fundamentalism, by the Mormons, by the way, that that's synonymous with the group that uh, believes in polygamy. But fundamentalism means those who fanatically believe in the Bible and, um, you know, well, ultra-conservative, shall I say. So we find that here, it's kind of a put-down to try to put them together uh, to put those who stand for the Sabbath in the line of fundamentalists. We don't want to be fundamentalists. We want to be biblicalists. We want a biblical religion because even fundamentalists have it wrong in some areas. All right, fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday. So what is, basically what he's saying is Protestants meet for worship on Sunday, even conservative ones. Yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made did I read that wrong? Yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. Hmm. The Jewish Sabbath, or day of rest, was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. Now, what did Jesus give as the symbol for the resurrection? Death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism. Baptism by immersion. Those were the symbols that Jesus gave for the resurrection. And here, he gave no authorization of any other change. If Jesus had authorized the day of worship to be changed, stop and think. If Jesus really bent the... uh, uh, the Pharisees out of shape because his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. Don't you, th- and also, when he says circumcision doesn't matter, what, don't you think the headlines on the Jerusalem press would be in big, bold letters if he ever said he changed the Sabbath? And yet there's not a thing in the Scripture that said they ever complained about Jesus on which day he kept. They had a problem with him on the way he kept it because he didn't keep it the way they wanted him to keep it. He kept it the way the Bible said it should be kept, you see. So it was the way he kept it, not the day he kept it. And then look at this. Now, this is a very interesting one. I remember when this came out, 1995. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, whoops, I moved that too fast. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. As it got too big for its britches, it thought that it could change 
the commandments of God. Hmm. And it goes on to say, people who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists. Now, I didn't write that. If I wrote that, that would be prejudiced. I didn't write that. It was St. Catherine's Catholic Church that wrote that and published it. If we're going to be consistent, how can we say, I believe in the Bible and the Bible only as the basis of my faith. If it isn't scriptural, I don't stand for it. And yet, accept a tradition of men? That's what he's saying. If you're going to be consistent, then you need to be consistent on that too. And again, I didn't say it. So don't save your stones. You can throw them at St. Catherine's Catholic Church. Don't throw them at me. I didn't say it. Of course the church claims that the change was made by her act. And the act is the mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. Aha! What is this saying? The Catholic Church is saying her mark of her authority is her ability to change the commandments of God. Pope Benedict, he said this. Well, that's in Latin, so I'll skip that. Without Sunday worship, we cannot live. He was advocating, even John Paul was, he was advocating in Europe especially that they enact religious laws requiring the observance of Sunday. And the Catholic Church is quite determined. It says without Sunday, we can't live. We need them. Revelation 13.8 And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. As, this, as we move toward end times, we're going to find that more and more people are going to be asking questions as to, hey, how come, where, where did this tradition come from? How come the Bible says this and yet the church is saying something different? And they're going to be asking questions As time moves on, and in vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines, uh, for doctrines, the commandments of men. We cannot break what God has said is his, the transcript of his character. You can stand on the street corner. What if that happened? I almost brought one with me. What if you stood on the street corner and you reached in your pocket and you pulled out a white cloth and you threw it on the ground and you stomped all over it? Would people, people kind of think you're little, you know, but they, they wouldn't think anything of it. You have the right to do that. Okay, you reach in, you pull out a blue one and you put that down and you stomp all over that. And then you reach in and you pull out a red one and you stomp all over that. And then you reach in and you pull out a red, white, and blue one with little stars on it and stripes. And you put that down on the ground and you start stomping on it. What kind of a reaction would you get? You see, it's the same colors, but red doesn't have the significance. White doesn't have the significance. Blue doesn't have the significance. But when they're in the right combination, they have a big significance of what they stand for. Because being a Vietnam veteran, you know that that represents something, right? And by you stomping all over with your muddy old boots, you are being disloyal to something. And that's what God says. Some people say, oh, every day's alike. It doesn't matter which day you keep. Well, it's true. You can go to church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I mean, I've gone over to the church for a lot of things, special meetings and services. But why is the Sabbath different? It's simply because God said so. It is the sign of my loyalty to him. The Sabbath is God's banner. The Sabbath is God's flag. 
And he says, get your muddy boots off my flag. That's what he's saying. As a matter of fact, we, we find that the prophet Isaiah talks about that. That we are to serve him and to keep his commandments as a sign of our relationship to him. And to take our foot off the Sabbath. And as it says in John fourteen fifteen, it gives us the reason for doing this. It gives us the reason why we should do it. Not to be saved, but because we are in a saving relationship with him. If you love me, keep my commandments. My friends, <clears throat> today, nobody wants to receive, I'm sure, the mark of the beast. And I want you to know that the mark of the beast is not yet imposed by God. Why? Even though we find that it's being practiced in many parts of the world, yet it is not being enforced by law. You see? Notice what John Paul II said. Christians will naturally strive to ensure civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Did I read that right? That sounds funny. Or is it the way it's written? Anyway, it says that Christians should push for Sunday laws. That's what it's saying. And in Revelation 13, 16 and 17, it says, and he caused all, doesn't matter your station in life, both small and great, richer and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in the right hand and in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that has had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. You see in John four twenty four it says, God is a spirit. And he that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Yes, the devil wants worship. The devil wants us to follow him. But he doesn't want to be a sacrifice. He doesn't want to die. I want to follow the one who did die and was the sacrifice that might ha- I might have life. My friends, Cain and Abel had to make a choice. God told them to bring to him a sacrifice. He even specified what kind of a sacrifice he wanted. Which sacrifice? Bring me me an animal. Bring me a lamb. Cain came to worship. He came to worship, but he had a false worship. Instead of obediently bringing what God wanted, he brought the fruit of his own labors, the fruit of his own hand. Abel brought what God asked. Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was not. Is God fussy? Ah, well, you see, there's a lot of symbolism behind that. God was fussy because of what it stood for. My friends, the Lamb of God is the only one who can satisfy our spiritual need. We serve him because we love him. This evening, how many of you want to serve God because you love him? That has to be your motivating purpose. Tonight, I know we're running a little late here, but tonight... You've never kept the Sabbath before. Maybe you've been sloppying your Sabbath keeping. There's a little card here that table leaders can pass around to you. And it has on it five questions. You can check whichever ones you want or none if you would choose not to. But I want you to look at it for a moment before we have our prayer. I choose to follow the teachings of Jesus as found in the Bible. If that's your choice, check it. Number two, I choose not to worship the beast and receive the mark of the beast. If that's your choice, check it. 
I choose to worship him who made heaven and earth by keeping the seventh day Sabbath on Saturday. If that's your choice, check it. Remember we talked a little bit before about baptism too. I desire to be baptized or rebaptized. If that's your desire, some of you may never have been, we give you the opportunity to check that. I have questions I would like to discuss, and you can write them right on the back of the cards. If you're willing to fill these out and leave them on the table, I would appreciate it. And make sure you write questions on the back of it if there's anything that is not clear to you. I do want you to know that I appreciate your being here, and I look forward to seeing you again on Monday night when our subject will be the 144,000. A question people have lots of uh, ideas about. Also, those survey sheets, if you would like to leave them on the table, um, I will be glad to look at them and try to see how we can accommodate them. Let's have prayer together. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your blessings and for being with us. Tonight, we know that there's a lot of things that we have to think about. And we just pray that the Spirit of God will lead our minds and hearts. Help us, Lord, to serve you, not because we have to, but because we want to. In Jesus' name, amen.